The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour with me, David Kermode, here on Food FM. This week, we're celebrating International Viognier Day with a woman who has been described as the Queen of Viognier, Yolumba's chief winemaker, Louisa Rose, to find out why she's so passionate about this aromatic and crowd-pleasing variety. Plus, of course, as always, your medal-winning recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Viognier makes some of the world's most expensive wines in tiny quantities from Condria in the Northern Rhone. And by contrast, it also makes some of the best value ones that I think you'll find in the aisles of your local supermarket or wine shop. The latter category is in very large part due to the success of Yolumba, a family-owned winery, the oldest in Australia, where the chief winemaker, Louisa Rose, has pioneered the variety over the last 30-odd years. Um, Hence, she has become known as the Queen of Viognier. From the satisfying entry-level Y series, which uh, offers real value at around eight quid in the supermarket, through to the enchanting, intriguing and complex premium wine, the Vigilius, at around £40 a pop. Uh, Rose crafts them all and must surely know everything there is to know about this intriguing, crowd-pleasing variety as we prepare to celebrate International Viognier Day, and why not, uh, this coming week. And I'm delighted to say, um, despite being a a very busy woman, Louisa joins us now uh, from the winery. Um, Welcome to the drinking hour, Louisa. Thank you, David. It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. Um, First up, uh, before we get to your journey and uh, a bit about Yolumba too, tell us why uh, you think we should celebrate Viognier. Well, it's such a, it's a wonderful variety. It, it, it's got uh, it's got beautiful flavours. It's got beautiful textures. It's one of the best varieties I know that goes with food, um, and and I'm sure we'll talk about it. But any food really is is great with Viognier. So, um, you know, I think it's a great part of our lifestyle, and, and we can celebrate it. But the real reason, I, I suppose, that we we established International Viognier Day um, a few years ago was. Um, because it seemed that other varieties had their own day. And there is an international Chardonnay day and an international Riesling day and an international Grenache day. And and we thought, well, maybe we should just have an international Viognier day. It's a variety that's really, really special to us here at Yolumba. And uh, what a great opportunity, what a great excuse to, uh, you know, have a few, uh, have a few tastings and um, a few parties. Well, that's certainly a good reason. Do you think these particular uh, days uh, that we talk about, uh, there's a Merlot day and, uh, as you say, all the other ones you listed, what do you think they they actually do to help promote a particular grape variety? I think it's just awareness. Um, you know, we there's so many varieties, and you know, out there, um, and, you know, apart from the few mainstream ones, many of them, you know, like, like Viognier just don't really, you know, get, get much of a... A look in, in in many cases so you know it's nice to have a have a you know a bit of a headline that you can say right today's about this particular variety and for businesses for for ourselves of course as the as you know as a winery but many other wineries we hope will get on board as well and um, sometimes there's events that, are, that happen around the world sometimes you know restaurants will put on particular wine and food matches um, so that's it's a really good opportunity to focus and 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 you and our customers hopefully out there will we'll, we'll latch on to some of those ideas and, and it will become front of mind for them rather than just somewhere, you know, in the uh, in the general wine cellar of their mind. You say front of mind. Um, it, it, it's astonishing to think that uh, within my lifetime, uh, Viognier almost disappeared as a variety, didn't it? That's right. And, and we, th- we think, and it's actually really hard to get some of these sort of, you know, figures, but we think that there were somewhere between 11 and, and 14 hectares of it in existence when it was first planted at Yolumba in 1980. It had been more widely planted, you know, we believe, you know, earlier in the 1900, um, 1900s in, in France. Um, but it really hadn't gone anywhere else. And, and even, um, you know, Condria itself, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, there's 10 times more vines planted there now um, than there were um, in, in that sort of late 70s, early 80s time. So it was, it was nearly extinct. And, and I think, um, you know, that, that people, wineries like ourselves, um, 
in the in the early in the eighties and then particularly in the early nineties were really looking for a point of difference. They were looking for new varieties. Um, you know, in many cases, in Australia, in fact, even though Chardonnay had been here for a long time, um, you know, most most winemakers didn't hadn't been working with Chardonnay or even making that. So, you know, that was one of the varieties that became very popular. Pinot Grigio a bit later, um, and then you know, for us um, with Viognier. And I was reading uh, Jancis Robinson's uh, blog, uh, her website, um, talking about the, the history of, uh, of Viognier, and that's where she uh, alights on it. And she t- talks about the fact that in 1985, um, she was able to identify, as you said, scarcely a, a few hectares around the world of this uh, particular variety. Yet she went on, she says, to describe it as a, a major grape variety, um, even though there were literally tiny quantities of it uh, planted and um, it's uh, it, it, when you consider that it it did almost become extinct it's extraordinary because critics and um, sort of the public generally just love this variety don't they they do they do once they they discover it um, and and it's it is still that sort of discovery process for so many people you know around the world you know with, with Viognier um, but you know what's not to love about it you know it's it's such a delicious variety um, I, I, it is interesting, and I love that you know that Jancis, um that you just quoted her because when um, when I started um, at Yolomba in 1992, um, I actually I'd never heard of Viognier. You know, I'd studied winemaking and tasted many wines through my studies, and I didn't know. I'm sure I hadn't I, I hadn't ever heard of it. If I had, it had just gone straight through um, between the years. But um, it. It also it, it wasn't hard it wasn't easy to find a lot of information about it and in fact Jancis's writings were about the only thing I could find. Um, plenty of people had requoted her, um, but that but that was about the only information that you know we could actually find about about this variety. And you know it wasn't uh, if you can if you you may not be able to recall that far back, David. But um, mm-hmm. you know you didn't just pop on a computer and, and Google things in those days. You know research was actually going through magazines and library filing systems and you know that sort of thing. So it it, it grew um, you know perhaps slowly for a while and then you know got more of a critical mass through the through the nineties as as more and more people tasted it and fell in love with it. I was introduced to it. Uh, I think in probably around the turn of the millennium, and and I had I had a great enthusiasm for wine by then, but I had definitely not heard of it. And I remember being introduced to it uh, by a friend of mine who brought some bottles back from the south of France and uh, called it Vonnier and uh, <laughs> couldn't pronounce it. I don't know if that's something that you still encounter uh, to this day with people getting the, the name wrong. Uh, yes, um, we get a lot of Viognier's, uh, but. You know, we've often um, thought about it. And, and when we released, you, you mentioned earlier the Y series, which is our, you know, introduction to people with Viognier. When we launched that wine in the late 90s, we were we were nervous that, that because it was a name that, that seemed to be difficult to pronounce, that, that people wouldn't buy it. Um, and that just did not prove to be the case. It was, you know, we heard anecdotally these stories of people going into shops and saying, I've heard about this new wine. You know, it starts with V, Yolumba make it. You know, where can, where can I get it? You know, they were... They they were they got over that um, you know nervousness about the the not being able to pronounce it really quickly. Um, having said that, we did do um, quite a lot of advertising in the um, you know in those days, um, and we even had sort of big billboards up in 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 cities that sort of had had the sort of the phonetically sort of spelt so you know like V on yay. And we have a little which is quite an Australian sort of uh, way of sort of remembering it over here. But uh, at our Viognier symposium in two thousand and one, Bailey Meyer, who was um, another one of early Viognier makers in Australia, he got up and said, good on you, Viognier. Oh, very good. Yeah, no, it's um, I was. And that's uh, the sort of thing people need. Yeah. Well, it is, and it's um, I remember seeing on um in New Zealand, seeing on a blackboard a reference to Grunewaldliner, and it was described as groovy jetliner, and I just thought that was absolutely fantastic. I, I can't look at the name without thinking about that now. So it's it's lovely. Um, you when you talk about uh, Viognier, and I've um I've sat at the other end of a a, a Zoom screen for virtual tastings with you, which are are always um sort of straight talking and always uh, always fantastic and full of uh, information and and sort of nuggets of detail and you um, often reference i'm taking i'm I'm paraphrasing slightly here but you basically reference uh, viognier as a white wine for red lovers uh, don't you absolutely i do um and i think you know when we when when you unpick what viognier you know the flavors and the textures and and how it's made and all of those sort of things it's it does in many ways um behave more like a red uh, grape 
um, and or, or even a red wine, although we don't ferment it on skins. And so that makes sense then that you have a wine which, you know, has those sort of textural um, elements to it that red wine drinkers are more used to in red wines. Um, I've, I've had, I, don't, I, I couldn't count the number of times I've done tastings or, you know, dinners and, and people have said, oh, no, I, I won't try that, I won't do the white, I don't drink white. Um, and, um, you know, usually it's free at that point in time. So I say, no, no, you've got to, you've got to try it. Um, and if you give people a glass and, you know, it, almost always they go, wow, I didn't expect to like that, but I really like that. Um, as, as recently as last night, I, did, I had a, somebody that, you know, no, I don't drink white wine, but, oh, I really like that. It, it also sits very comfortably um, in small quantities anyway as a bedfellow with uh, red wine grapes, doesn't it? Especially, obviously, historically in the Rhone, but uh, um, in, in Australia too. Yes, um, and so particularly with Shiraz. Um, so in, in that sort of, you know, in the great Australian way of, um, of, uh, of taking the best things from around the world and making them out there our own, um, we, um, we started making um, Shiraz Viognier wines um, in the late 90s. Um, and many, wine, many wineries did, um, you know, emulating the, the, the beautiful wines, of course, of Cobra Tea. And um, even though we started off at that sort of 15 or 20%, we realised that was quite a, quite a, a, a lot, even at 2 and 3 and 5%. Um, the Viognier, it just seems to, when you ferment the Viognier white grapes with the red grapes, it helps to lift up the sort of the perfumes and the aromatics of the of the, the Shiraz in our case. It doesn't have the sort of the apricotness of Viognier, it, but it enhances the sort of the purple fruits, the blueberries and the violets and those characters that we see in um, some of our, um, particularly Shiraz from uh, the cooler regions like Eden Valley and, um, you know, Ratton Bully, which is where we do. And, of course, the very well-known Australian Shiraz Viognier is from Clonakilla, which are from Canberra. Um, there's an interesting, um, a, a, a quite an interesting scientific sort of fact about um, about what happens, and it's called co-pigmentation. And the, the, the tannins or the phenolics, if you like, from the skins, so the things that, that you know, when you chew up a grape skin, it gets really bitter, in a white grape, um, are, are not coloured. In a red grape, of course, they're, they're red and that's where the colour comes from. But when you ferment the white and the red together, they react together, those phenolic compounds and the tannins, to form different, different tannins that are a little bit bigger and different structure. And they are redder than the Shiraz is on its own. That's a fairly moot point for us, to be honest, in the Barossa. We don't need more colour. We've got plenty of colour and very long-lived colour. Um, but it is still an interesting scientific sort of, you know, th thing that happens that you would expect adding white to red would dilute it, and in fact it does the opposite. Yeah, it's fascinating. And out of interest, um, when you're winemaking, you mentioned the percentages there, and you mentioned that um, in the early days you might have put a bit too much Viognier uh, in the mix. Um, what happens if you put too much Viognier uh, in with the Shiraz. Well, then it does start to look sort of apricotty and <laughs> and white wine, white wine, red wine like. And look, I mean, we've still got some of those early wines, and they're they're really quite fun and delicious. But that wasn't what we were looking for. We were looking for, you know, a really beautiful perfume structural, you know, red wine, um, you know, with with Shiraz. So, um, you know, I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't blend it 50-50 and you'd have something sort of halfway between a red and a rosé, probably. Um, and it would be quite fun. Um, there's no there's no rules here in Australia. We can you know we can blend what we like. Uh, and you do, and it's a, a great success. Um, a lot of those people like me in the wine world who talk about wine but don't actually make it um, tend to talk about Viognier as um, a rather capricious, rather difficult grape. And I know uh, recently I was uh, on one of those zooms. Um, you kind of. Um, rebutted that uh, to, to a great extent. Um, you don't tend to take the view that it is that difficult to grape, do you? No, I, I, I don't. And, and I have, uh, yes, I've also heard that rumour. Um, it's been well uh, well published uh, by lots of people. Perhaps as a bit of an excuse in some cases, I often think. But there is something, though, about Viognier, and, and I understand why people why people think it is, is a difficult vine to grow, because if you're expecting it to behave like other white varieties that you might you make it doesn't so you have when you understand it and you actually say okay i now understand how the viognier is growing and what the viognier likes for example it, when we started working with viognier it, it did take us quite a few years to to make wines we were happy with because we were used to making varieties at that point like riesling um out of the eden valley and semillon we were making a little bit of Sauvignon blanc as i said before we really hadn't really started to make chardonnay so we weren't used to making sort of these more fuller bodied um wines 
Um, and so we, we treated our first Viognier light Riesling. We picked it quite early. We kept the fruit very protected and cold. And when we pressed it, we, we cleaned the filter, filtered the juice so it was really pristine and, and added a yeast, um, you know, that had come, um, you know, a selected yeast. And we made wines that were really unexciting. They had very little flavour. And we realised that, in fact, after a while, that we were picking the grapes too early. You know, they didn't have much flavour at that normal white wine sort of um, ripeness. We needed to leave the grapes on the vine longer. We learnt that, you know, when you leave the grapes on the vine longer, all of a sudden, you know, at a, at a higher ripeness, you get these beautiful apricots and spices coming through, which, of course, is what, what we want to see now in the wines. Um, the other thing we found, which was very different to normal, uh, for a white grape, and that is that Viognier grapes like to be out in the sun. You know, they quite literally get a bit of a suntan um, by, uh, by by being out there, and, and they're the most flavourful grapes, whereas, you know, again, for something like Riesling, you know, it's a complete opposite. So, or, or at least it is it is for us in, in the Eden Valley. I'm, I don't want to say that that would be the case all over the world. So it, it's that understanding of Viognier, um, I think, that, um, you know, that you need. You know, so rather than just say it's difficult or it's capricious, um, you just need to spend a bit of time getting your head around it and getting to know it. Uh, which you did. And uh, there are, I, I'd struggle to think of anyone who, who knows more about the grape variety uh, the, than you, um, uh, I suspect. Um, so hang time, um, in layman's terms, sort of letting them sunbathe a bit longer on the vine. That is really key, is it? Yeah. Um, I, well, it, the key is to, is to pick the grapes when they're ripe. And when they're and ripe for Viognier means when, when it's got all those sort of beautiful flavours. Now, whether, sometimes that doesn't need, you know, a, a long time, but it's but it's usually, um, you know, making wines that are, you know, probably around between sort of a potential 12.5% to sometimes 13.5% um, alcohol, which is a bit higher than, you know, some of our other white wines would be. So it is just a case of, yeah, don't be impatient, you know, don't don't look at the numbers, go out and taste the grapes and pick them when they when they taste good. What about controlling alcohol? Because um, uh, as anyone who, who knows a bit about wine will know, if you if the longer you let something ripen, the uh, the more likely you are to have a higher level of alcohol. And yet um, I've never noticed alcohol in a negative way on any of your wines um, ever. And it's very well integrated. And looking at the levels, um, it doesn't seem to be that high uh, relative to other wines. Uh, no. I, in the early days when we were making them, they were they they tended to be a bit higher, and I, I think we've we've managed to balance our vineyards and really have you know, and and I think vine age helps as well. But the way that you know the things that we do in the vineyard are all, are all tied around trying to get those flavours in the grapes as early as we can. Even though I've said they're later than than um, other varieties, it's still you know we're still trying to sort of get them in there early, and that that involves keeping your vines healthy and making sure that they're not overcropped and and being really really quick. I mean, once those flavours are there, there's nothing to wait for anymore. You you pick it. You don't just leave them hanging out and hanging out and out. And uh, I've tasted examples, again, not yours, um, but um, examples of Viognier that have been rather blousy in texture, mm. quite quite fat, not really very focused. Um, is that because um, the acidity can be a challenge in Viognier? Yeah, and that's a um, good point. And I, sh I probably should have mentioned this before when, I, when it was part of the, you know, get to know your Viognier before you, uh, uh, before you make it. Um, Viognier is a naturally a very low acid variety which again is opposite of what we're used to in many other varieties. So, so and that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a great thing. If you have, you still need something in your wine to give it a freshness and to give it length and to give it, you know, what I would describe as, um, you know, food friendliness and that sort of moorishness. Um, now, if you haven't got natural acidity in your wine, then you need to get that from somewhere else. Now, some of it comes from um, the alcohol levels and I'll, I'll I'll come back to that balance question that you, you asked me, well, you, you mentioned before. But in but what we feel in our Viognier is it, um, it's a really important thing to help balance that that and give it that refreshing character are the very fine phenolics or the white tannins um, that come from the skins. Um, and and they, are, uh, they are still, you know, present in our wine. Now, I'll get a bit, I'll get a bit winemakery and tell you, tell you how we make the wines. So we, when, we, when, we pick, when the grapes have that flavour, we pick them. We bring the grapes into the winery, we press them, um, we don't add anything to them, we just press them and the juice goes straight into the vessel um, that is going to um, have the fermentation uh, proceed in it. That might be a, a stainless steel tank in the case of wines like the Y-Series um, or our organic Viognier, um, or it might be um, in um, some mature French oak barrels. 
um, that we would use, say, for the Eden Valley Viognier or the Virgilius. Um, regardless, um, the juice goes into those vessels and it's, it's passively reacting with the air. And just like when you cut an apple and the apple goes brown, juice um, that um, reacts with the air also goes quite brown. Um, and what's going brown are the bigger, more bitter um, phenolics or tannins out of the grape skins that would, would make a quite an ugly sort of, you know, ex extracted flavouring uh, textured wine. Um, so they, they react with the air, they go brown. And during the fermentation, they precipitate out. So they become these tiny little solids and they literally fall out. And at the end of the fermentation, you've got these beautiful, green, vibrant coloured wines. You know, pale, I'm going to say, I'm not, you know, they're pale, but they've got those beautiful sort of green, green tinges. And that's, um, so So we've got rid of the things that, that can be, that, that can make the wine bitter. Some of those phenolics, I think, also have the potential to, you know, make the wine more blizzy, um, certainly go brown and the flabby almost, I think. So got rid of the, the, the ugly, ugly phenolics. We're just left with those lovely sort of fine phenolics that I mentioned earlier. And what they do is they give you that, it's almost a refreshing, can I say a refreshing bitterness? And I mean that in a really mm. positive way. It's the length uh -huh. of the wine. And it's acting like it is acting a bit like acidity. And people will often say to me, oh, do we, we actually really like your Viognier. We don't normally like Viognier because it's it can be a bit sort of, you know, blousy um, or oily um, and flabby. And, uh, and But your wines are lovely because they've got lots, you know, better natural acidity. And I won't, I wouldn't always correct them on that. I might just smile and say thank you. Um, and balance is key, is absolutely key to, to Viognier because if you have too many of those bigger tannins, as I said, they go quite bitter. If you have too much acidity, you know, it can be really quite sour. Um, and so, you know, you just want that lovely sort of level of, of, of balance. It's really interesting you mentioned that because um, on the most recent um, Zoom with some very experienced uh, wine uh, writers uh, present, um, there were a lot of remarks about the fresh acidity. And that's where we got onto uh, that phenolic character uh, and how it plays um, that uh, really significant role in terms of keeping uh, the wine balanced and um, in check. Do you uh, find a difference with um, organic uh, fruit? Because you use a lot of um, organic uh, fruit uh, for your uh, Viognier wines. You have a specific organic Viognier, which is um, a, a really good value wine available in most of the major supermarkets here. Uh, a lot of people will be familiar with it. Um, and it's it's incredibly well priced. It's about less than £10. Quite often it's on promotion too. Um, do you find a difference with organic fruit? Uh, it's a really good question. So our organic Viognier came about, in fact, our organic wines, um, but Viognier was, was the first, um, came about when one of our our grape growers said, who was growing for Y Series at the time, you know, said to us, look, we've really enjoyed the journey we've been on with Yolumba in in our sustainability journey. If you've got a minute, we'll, just quickly, we, we've had a, um, an, an ongoing environmental management program, sustainability program in our own vineyards and, and, and in conjunction with our growers for many decades. We can talk about it for hours if you want to, um, but but in the vineyards, it, it 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 really is about creating biodiversity, about about natural balance, about really healthy vineyards. Um, when you've got a natural balance um, in your vineyard um, and in your environment, you don't need to interfere as much, so you don't need to um, use as many chemicals, for example, because instead of having to go and spray, you know, caterpillars at eating your vines, if you've got a few caterpillars. There's going to be some native wasps or some birds or spiders that that will keep them under control. Um, he'd really um, th this grower had really enjoyed that that sort of journey that that you know continuing to improve the you know the, the the sustainability of his vineyard and he wanted to go to the next step and said he came to us and said look I'd really like to become you know an organic vineyard um, and to be able to label something organic it has to come from an organically certified vineyard. What he did, what he went through then was the process of conversion and became audited and, and became became an organic grower and it gave us the opportunity to buy organic fruit, um, which was the first of our organic fruit and and to make it. Um, we are an organically certified winery. Um, we can we're certified and, and audited in the same way vineyards are to make sure that you know we're we're um, doing all the right things under the organic code. So the. It, there really isn't a huge difference in the way the grapes are grown and the way that the wines are made. I don't, I don't think I really see, um, you know, an organicness. Um, I'm not even sure I know what that would be, but if I definitely if I did see it um, in the organic wine, um, it is that it's, but it is you can be confident, of course, that it's organically certified. 
Um, it does come from um, just a few vineyards and, and mainly in that, that beautiful area we call the Riverland, which is along the banks of the Murray River, uh, whereas the Y-series has some Riverland fruit in it but also some other, other regions, some cooler regions that give more perfume, some, uh, you know, so the, the Y-series perhaps is a bit more um, a bit more complex, whereas the organic is just has that beautiful sort of richness and, and, and loveliness that uh, um, we get from that part of the world. Just explain a bit more geography for us, because uh, my Australian wine geography is famously terrible. It's the only major wine region, uh, wine producing country that I've I've not visited. Um, and so I, I tend to be a bit um, uh, a, a bit ropey on my wine geography. So for me and for the benefit of those, uh, because it's a vast country as well, uh, just explain um, if you can. Um, uh, wh- where you are and, um, and, and, and what's significant about um, the area around you? Well, to start off with, if you pick Australia up, um, and, and, and if you could, and you took it up to the Northern Hemisphere and laid it over Europe, it mostly covers Europe. I think you have to pick up Spain and sort of shuffle it into a gap somewhere. But, but it, So if you think about them as basically the same size, um, and you think about the range and the variety of different wine regions, varieties, styles, climates, all those things in Europe, um, you've pretty got pretty much got a very similar um, range of styles and climates and wines and um, philosophies as you as you do um, in Europe and Australia. So um, that makes it very difficult to talk about Australia as a region. Um, so we we tend to talk more about our, our specific regions. So Yolumba is based in South Australia. Um, so South Australia is the state that's really, if you think about the, 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 the mainland of Australia, it's the, the bit that's in the middle in the lower half. So we, um, our, our, the Southern Ocean, you know, comes up to the, the, the coast at the bottom of, um, of South Australia and then South Australia goes from there, um, which, is, we, which is where most of the people sort of live, you know, nearish the coast because as you go inland, um, the, we get into desert very quickly. And you get right up to sort of, um, you know, close to sort of Ayers Rock and and, and that part of uh, the central Australia at the top of South Australia. So that's our state. Our capital city is Adelaide, which has about a million people in it. So it's not the biggest city in Australia by a long way, but it's a great city when it comes to, you know, to lifestyle and particularly around food and wine and and the arts and those things. So a great place. Um, And if you drive about an hour um, northeast of Adelaide, you get to the Barossa. And the Barossa is made up of two, uh, two, two smaller regions, the Barossa Valley and also the Eden Valley. So the Eden Valley is differentiated from the Barossa Valley because it's higher in altitude, um, goes up to about 500 metres above sea level, or at least the, the great plantings do. And what that altitude gives you compared to the Barossa Valley is, is coolness and particularly more coolness at night. So we get colder nighttime temperatures in the Eden Valley. We get a, a higher diurnal range. The difference between night and day is much greater in the Eden Valley than it is in the Barossa Valley. And cold nights are perfect for growing aromatic um, varieties. Um, historically, Riesling has been the aromatic variety of the Eden Valley. Uh, but since 1980, um, as we said, has also had a really important part uh, role to play up there. And uh, climate-wise, um, you're dealing. Uh, you mentioned there the the diurnal range, those cool nights and and and, and sunny days, uh, great for ripening, great for acidity. Um, are you sort of facing some of the uh, major challenges that other regions in Australia and elsewhere in the world are with things like access to water, um, extremes like fires and and that kind of thing. In in a simple answer, yes. Um, I. So we, our climate is, we talk about it being a Mediterranean climate. Of course, we're near the Mediterranean. But, but what we mean by that is that we have, you know, a dry, you know, low humidity, um, warm summer um, and most of our rain falls um, in winter and in spring. Now, that is perfect for growing grapes. So we, we are very blessed with our climate here and I suppose it's the reason why there's so many grapes that are growing in, in the Barossa and in South Australia more generally. Perfect climate to start with. Um, but yes, we do have the extremes, um, and you know, fires are always a risk. Um, as you know, as as are sort of storms and hail and those sort of things, where you know, which we we seem to be seeing a little bit more of, even more frosts, which sounds sort of counterintuitive during a um, you know when we talk about warming warming climate, but we do see more extremes of weather. But you know, we're not as uh, we're not as vulnerable, thank goodness, and we haven't had. We haven't had the, the floods that they've had on the east coast of Australia this year, for example. They've just been horrendous. 
And uh, in terms of what you're doing, you mentioned um, sustainability and you mentioned you could talk for, for hours about <laughs> it. Um, don't do that. But, um, no. <laughs> but but do tell us what, what you're doing then to try to counter some of those um, extreme effects. Um, what, what can you do within your own operation? Well, we can, we can do what, what everybody can do, and what every business can do, and that is to, to try to improve um, and to... Um, you know, I think in terms of climate change, um, which is which is probably the, the the biggest single issue for the wine industry, the global wine industry, um, really. Um, that sort of you know race to net zero, if you like, um, is is a really important um, milestone, and we can all do our bit to do that. We have, for example, twenty five percent of our power is generated by um, solar panels on the roofs of our winery and buildings which is so that renewable energy is, you know, it's obviously then, you know, making sure that, you know, the energy you're buying is or the electricity you're buying isn't coming from, you know, or, um, you know, or even or even gas burners. Um, we are also living in a state in South Australia which has a, a significant percentage of its um, electricity already um, generated by renewable resources. So um, we're, we're lucky there and that's where, you know, the importance of everybody working together comes along. Um, we've done things like, for example, the Y-Series um um, glass, the bottle that it comes in, um, you know, we moved to a lighter weight glass um, a few years ago that um, has saved 20% of the, um, you know, of the weight, which means that not only is there not as much energy used in the production of the glass, but the um, it, it's also uh, less energy used to ship it. So the, the, the biodiversity that I mentioned before, um, you know, is really important, you know, so cutting out, um, you know, a lot of, you know, excess fertilisers and things reduces greenhouse gas, gases coming out of your, your soils. Um, we have, uh, for every hectare of vineyard that we, we have, we have at least another hectare um, of native vegetation within and around our vineyards. Um, so, you know, planting trees is always a good, uh, a, a good thing to try and sort of, you know, heal the planet. Um, so bit by bit we're doing that. We're also members of the International Wineries for Climate Action, which is a, a group that started in 2019, I think, um, and the founding members were Torres from Spain and the Jackson family from California. And, and they've got together. And it is, it, it is, um, it is for like-minded wineries to, to get together and, and to, to work together um, to, to measure and to, you know, to calculate and then to reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions uh, and, 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 and get to zero um, you know, net zero carbon um, by 2050. So that's the that's the aim, and it's a it's a really proactive group. Um, you know, you don't just join it and just you know, just for just for the fun of it. You've got to, there's a lot of work you've got to do. And again, it's another it's another one of these programs that is you know that is that is audited. Um, you know, so you know, you won't just be making claims about what you what you're doing. Um, you 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 you'll have to prove it. Um, and um, and you know, the more and more more and more you know, on a daily basis, we're finding more and more ways that we can. You know, we can, um, you know, change change the things that we do. Um, just the refrigerants that we use, for example. You know, we don't, we, you know, we used to use, you know, in this industry a lot of, you know, refrigerants that were, um, you know, greenhouse gases. So, you know, you reduce those, you reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that you use. So, lots and lots of things. And uh, as you say, uh, that that initiative uh, that, that you know initiated by um, uh, Torres and, and Jackson family vineyards that it, it does involve some serious commitments so you're, you're right you don't sort of do it um, half half-heartedly you talked there about um working together and um i i tend to think and it may be a bit of a lazy stereotype that sort of australia has a, a little bit of a noisy male culture sometimes and um i've interviewed a, a number of um of, of pioneering um uh, female winemakers and and you are absolutely in that category with you know, more than 30 years of uh, experience winemaking um have you ever had any grief from uh, males um, being a, a, a pioneering woman doing the job that you do? No, I really, I really haven't. And and you know why I think you know we just don't. And I'm not saying it doesn't. It it may well exist in the wine industry, but I've certainly never never seen it, and never experienced it. But but I think the reason that that for that is that you know most people come into the wine industry because it's because it's the wine industry, because it's about having a good time. It's about producing a product that's going to, you know, improve people's lives and, you know, be part of their their memories and, and, their, and all their experiences. And, and that's, pretty, that's pretty exciting. When we get together, 
Um, and sure, I've, there, there's been plenty of committees and, and things I've been on over the years that there haven't been other women there. But genuinely, people are just, you know, in the wine industry, just in, in Australia anyway, just really want to have a good time. So, you know, that, that, that tends to sort of rule out too much sort of nasty behaviour. Good. Uh, and I think, if I'm not wrong, uh, Yolumba, um, the the current um, uh, generation, um, you know, Robert's daughters, uh, it's an all-female generation, the new generation at Yolumba, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah. So Robert's got three daughters. And yes, you're, you're right. They're, they're all they're all beautiful uh, women. Jess Hill-Smith, um, who's his oldest daughter, is, is now very much a part of the business, um, generation number six. She has spent some time you know, travelling the world and working in the wine industry around the world um, before she came and, and started to work here. And, um, yeah, she's amazing. Um, she worked in the UK for quite a while, so some of your listeners may well know her. I remember her well from uh, mm-hmm. from tastings, absolutely. Um, and tell us a bit about Yolumba and that, um, uh, that uh, incredible history, because I-, I asserted at the beginning that it's the oldest winery in Australia. I hope I was correct in saying that. Yeah, we're the oldest family-owned winery. Um, there are a few wineries that are no longer family-owned uh, that um, were established a little bit before us. But 1849 was um, the, the, the birth date of Yolumba. It was started by a man called Samuel Smith. He was a brewer. Um, he came out from from Dorset. Yes, from Dorset. Um, and he, um, he brought his family out um, and, you know, went to the other side of the world. Um, he, um, he was also a keen gardener and he got um, some work working um, in the Barossa in, in what is now the town of Anguston, working for the, um, the Angus family who were from where you know, Anguston has named um, and then um, went across to the uh, Victorian um, gold fields during the gold rush and found some gold. And he found enough gold. I don't to, to to come back and and to you know to to start to plant his his first vineyard. Um, and we we talk about him planting it you know by by moonlight um, while he was still working for the Angus family. But um, and from there he his sons um, and you know right up now to to Jessica Hill Smith have, have been the uh, you know the owners and and very hands on in um, in running this business. So most of my uh, time at Yolumba has been, you know, working, you know, for Robert Hillsmith, the fifth generation. And, and Robert was, you know, he's an incredibly inspirational person. He, and under his stewardship, um, you know, and timing, Yolumba has gone from, you know, what was relatively a, a domestic focused business to an international facing business with, you know, selling to 52 countries around the world. You know, we're known for our innovation. We're, we're known for, you know, for things like Viognier, um, Cabernet Shiraz, um, and, uh, you know, for, for some of our sort of, you know, cooler climate wines that, um, and vineyards that Robert's bought in, in the meantime. And you began there as a cellar hand in 1992, didn't you? Kind of straight from, I guess, straight from college. Yeah, so I was, well, I was still studying. So I was studying at Roseworthy, which is an agricultural college, or was an agri- no, it is still an agricultural college, um, not far from the Barossa. And I come over from Victoria, so Victoria is and, and grew up in Melbourne. Um, so when I was studying, um, one of our subjects in our final year was go and find yourself a vintage job, and write a report about it. So I thought, well, I probably never come back to South Australia, so I'll I'll see if I can get a job nearby. Um, and the brosser was nearby, so I got out um, the way we used to find phone numbers in those days, which was a book called The Yellow Pages, and I, I wrote to um, I wrote to all the wineries that were listed in the in the Barossa. And um, the first one that rang me up to off, and, and, and I might say one of the only ones that actually got back to me um, was Yolumba. And they said, yeah, we've got a vintage shop, come in and, you know, and meet us. And so that was really where it all started. Um, you know, I came in for that first, that first interview, which wasn't much of an interview. It was really, I, I'm sure they were just checking out that I'd be able to carry a bucket and, um, you know, mop the floors. And, um, and I started in January of 92. Um, and then when I finished that vintage, they said, would you like to come back next vintage? Um, which I did, and at that stage, um, the wine industry and, and Yolumba were were just starting to grow. It, it, our export markets were opening up. Um, it was a really exciting time in the in the in the wine industry during those nineties. Really quite heady days. You know, huge huge growth of, of wine Australian wines around the world, and that that meant that businesses were looking for you know a few more people, and it was just a um, a, a great opportunity for me to you know to get a full time job, and I'm still here. And you got the uh, 
the Vionier bug um, at Yolumba, I assume. I, I think Yolumba was the first uh, to plant it in a serious way, at least, in Australia, wasn't it? Yeah, so in 19, 1980, that's right. Um, yeah, and I'd never heard of Vionier before I got here. So it, it, it was still very, um, very rare, even in Australia in, in the, you know, the early 90s when I started. And um, but it was a great yeah it was a great journey to sort of go through and 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 as you know we've already been through the you know how do you understand Viognier, um and make a good, make a good Viognier, and that was just an amazing you know opportunity it's not it's not that often that a winemaker gets you know gets the opportunity to go through that journey with a with a whole new variety for a, for a, for a, for a country really um, but or even just for a winery and and to create styles from nothing. I uh, had the opportunity uh, which was both a um, a blessing and a, a curse in 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 in, in, level, in terms of anxiety. Uh, a few years ago, when I was a best man, to to choose the wines for a, quite a large a wedding of one of my very closest friends, and um, and, and uh, as as you'll appreciate, you know, trying to find um, a white, a red. Um, and a champagne uh, or a sparkling wine that's going to sort of satisfy everyone is is uh, is, is a challenge. I mean, uh, people go through this day in day out. And I actually chose your organic Viognier as the white. Um, and uh, the reason I did is because I, I mentioned the word crowd pleasing at the mm. beginning. I felt confident that even if people didn't know the grape that well that it would do all the things um, that everyone loves about a wine uh, without dividing opinion in the way that Sauvignon can and the way that uh, Chardonnay can on occasions. Um, is that something that uh, that you think um, is it, it kind of makes Viognier unique and rather special? Yeah I, I, I never thought about it that way I think it's a really good way to think about it I'll probably you'll probably hear me saying it next time you hear me on a Zoom tasting. Um, <laughs> but I think I think you're right. I, what I love about it um, is that it is, and I I said I'd, I'd talk a bit more about this later earlier. It is a great food wine. Um, it's not I, what it isn't is is I, is really a great aperitif stuff. So I wouldn't recommend that um, you know you served it instead of you know a sparkling wine or, or something like that at the beginning of a meal. But once you get food on the table or food in people's hands, that's where Viognier comes alive. You know, that low acidity, those phenolics that we've talked about, the textures, they just wrap around food and, and, and flavours. And I um, I throw this, and David, you've heard me say this before, and, I'm, and I genuinely mean it. You know, if people come to me, can try a Viognier with some food and they don't like the match, I need to know because I don't have a list of things that don't go with Viognier. I've just got an incredibly long list of things that do, uh, you know, go with Viognier and go really well. Um, you know, everything from sort of breakfast and brunches to, um, you know, to as I talk about, the, you know, the spice trail through the world from, you know, northern Africa, you know, through to, um, through to Asia, through all those different cuisines, whether they're rich in textural spicy foods or, you know, clean, fresh chilli. I was doing a tasting last um, about this time last night, actually, with some Australian journalists. You know, someone said, oh, surely it doesn't go with curry. And go, oh, it's perfect with curry. Oh, yeah, it's so, great. It's great yeah, with curry. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, um, it, but it really does. And then because of that red wineness that I keep talking about it, you know, the, the, it's like a red wine in many ways. It's it's equally at home with red meats and, you know, every steakhouse should have at least one Viognier on its list for people that don't perhaps want to drink a red um, because it's equally as good. And then, you know, right at the end of a meal, um, it's the perfect accompaniment with cheese. We, uh, we actually make a... Um, I don't know if you've tasted it, David. We make it in Australia a small amount of Petritus Viognier, which is sweet. Oh. Um, and it's got all of those beautiful richness and textures that Viognier has, um, and as well as having a bit of sugar. And that is a, a wine that's absolutely made for blue cheese. But even the dry Viognier is a great cheese wines. Yeah, you always say, show me something that uh, doesn't go with uh, Viognier. And mm. I have to say, mm. um, I have to concur, because uh, the only things I can think of that wouldn't go with Viognier are sort of chocolate and things like that that are very difficult to match with any wine at all, frankly. So um, I think, you know, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. So you must you must carry on saying that as you um, evangelise about this particular grape variety. Um, <laughs> well, just, sometimes uh, someone, someone's going to find something and let me know, I'm sure. Oh, well, they, well, they haven't yet, have they? Um, no. But uh, just, just finally, a, a big question to end with, but do you have a kind of winemaking philosophy? <laughs> Yes, I remember um, about uh, oh about twenty years ago, the sort of the head of our production area at the time came to me and said, "Louise, do you have a do you have a winemaking philosophy?" And I said, "Yes, of course." And he said, "Can I have a copy of it?" 
I said, well, I've never written it down. Um, <laughs> so I did actually, I did actually write down what our winemaking philosophy was. Um, but in a nutshell, I think it's about, um, you know, for all our wines, and it doesn't matter whether they're, you know, the Y series price point or whether it's at our top end with our Vigilius or, or any of our other wines. What we want to do is to, to, to do the, the best that we can to, to take the grapes and, ref, and, and ref, the, have the wines reflect those grapes, the variety or the blend, where they've come from, um, you know, in a very honest way. We want our wines to be, you know, to have a, a really a drinkability. We want people to, to finish a glass and think, you know, I think I'd like to have another glass. Um, you know, we don't want to make wines that are so overpowering that, that you know, one glass, one glass is enough. We um, have a, 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 a low intervention um, philosophy. So if we don't need to do something, we won't. Um, I've explained how we make Viognier. It's pretty simple. We don't add anything. You know, we just pick the grapes and we do add a little bit of sulfur dioxide, of course, as a preservative before we bottle the wines. Um, but that's about it. We don't use any um, animal fining agents at all in the making of our wine, um, which does make them um, vegan. They're vegan because that's the way we make the wines, not that we deliberately set out to make vegan wines. We we, we genuinely think they're better wines um, without being fined. So, um uh, does that sound like a philosophy? Yes, it does. Absolutely. It, it's um, uh, doing um, uh, actually relatively little uh, in the winery sounds like a, a bit of a, a philosophy, but I don't want to uh, suggest that you're, uh, you know, sitting around uh, in a chair somewhere sort of twiddling your fingers, but it's that that's kind of low intervention really, isn't it? Yeah. And look, I, I, for a winemaker, you know, actually doing nothing is actually a really hard decision. You know, the decision to do nothing rather than to do something um, is is not an easy one. You know, a lot of winemakers, you know, I think they like to, you know, put their fingerprint or their thumbprint or their handprint or something on a on a wine, and um, you know, and they also like often just to sort of fiddle around a bit. Now, I I, I think the best things, you know, if you if you can make the decision to do nothing, it's often the best decision, but it's but it's a hard one. Um, we don't we don't just sit around twiddling our fingers though, because what we do do um, is rather than you know interacting with the wines a lot we do a lot we, we we watch them we taste them we make sure that they are you know heading in the right direction at right through their winemaking so we know a lot about wine we know a lot about the science behind wine and you know we say so the more you know the less you have to do that sounds like a philosophy to me uh, <laughs> louisa thank you so end. much um, it, it's really it's always great to, to to listen to you and to to ask questions via the kind of chat function but it's a, a great pleasure to have uh, the best part of an hour with you uh, sort of talking one-to-one. Uh, -one. I know that um, uh, loads of people listening are going to have really enjoyed that too. So thank you so much for your time. Well, that's and, great. Uh, and you enjoy um, International Viognier Day, David. I will. I shall enjoy it with your Samuels Collection Eden Valley uh, Viognier. I think I adore that wine. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That's been my absolute pleasure. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Okay, to round off, as ever, our regular visit to the IWSC's Hall of Fame for some medal winners. And as we try to do when we can, we're starting with a topical selection. Uh, we're going to start with a Hill Smith Estate Wild Ferment Chardonnay 2021. Uh, from the Eden Valley, uh, which uh, Louisa was uh, referring to. That's the uh, the altitude uh, part uh, that she mentioned. Uh, this was a silver medal winner with uh, 93 points, I think, uh, from an um, estimable uh, judging panel featuring John Hoskins, MW, Master of Wine, uh, Freddie Bulmer, who is a regular on the drinking hour uh, from the Wine Society, Buyers for Australia, uh, Roger Jones, who's been a guest before, uh, Michelin-starred chef, and... Uh, Isabel, Master Sommelier. So that's one hell of a panel, frankly. Awarding their silver medal, the judges said, a pleasant yet restrained nose of citrus apple crumble, green apple and some buttercup. Uh, the palate is very citrus focused with a good use of oak and a well-rounded mouthfeel. Uh, next, from the same, albeit uh, somewhat extended uh, family stable, Oxford Landing Estates, Merlot 2020, a strong silver medal winner with uh, 93 points, uh, tasted by a panel of judges including Alex Hunt, MW, and David Round, another MW, that's Master of Wine. Awarding their medal, the judges said, a charming wine with ripe yet fresh red fruit, 
concentrated with good richness and complexity, balanced and long with hints of sweet spice and herbal notes on the finish. And Oxford Landing, I mentioned, was uh, founded in 1958 by the late uh, Wyndham Hillsmith, uh, known as Windy, who was uh, the father of uh, Robert Hillsmith, the current chairman who uh, Louisa mentioned in our chat, uh, who represents the fifth generation. And uh, to complete uh, a Yolumba trio um, in uh, Louisa's honour, uh, we have another medal winner, a bronze this time, incredible value at around £8 currently in Sainsbury's um, and other retailers too, actually. Uh, Yolumba Y series Viognier. Uh, this is the wine that Louisa mentioned where they've reduced the glass weight uh, by 20%. Uh, it's a, an excellent value wine. And the judges described this this way, pleasing blend of floral and tropical fruits in a full-bodied but fresh style. And next, let's uh, stay in South Australia, but uh, the new batch of medal winners from the 2022 Spirits Awards announced around a month ago. Uh, they're yet uh, to do wine in 2022. That's coming very shortly. Uh, this was uh, a silver medal winner from a distinguished panel that included Ivan Dixon, David T. Smith and Desmond Payne, MBE, who's the master distiller and the legend behind uh, Beefeater Gin. Uh, but this particular medal winner from uh, South Australia was 23rd Street Signature Gin. And uh, the judges described bold flavours of bright citrus, coriander and green herbs. The palate is smooth with good depth and a long lingering finish. And uh, finally, um, a gold medal winner this time uh, from a little further afield in Australia. Uh, a must try for me, actually, because this sounds really great. Grandad Jack's Craft Distillery 65 Miles Gin. Uh, it won a whopping 98 points. And the judges described warm spices on the nose with hints of clove, nutmeg, spice and chocolate. The palate is led by cinnamon, pepper and licorice that together have great balance and linger on the palate long after the sip, continually developing, uh, they said. Sounds just fascinating. And uh, talking of continually developing, uh, that's it uh, for us. But we're back again uh, next time. Uh, thanks to Louisa Rose for uh, her time. A really fascinating uh, chat, uh, proper Australian wine royalty. Um, thank you to you, too, for listening. Uh, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. And I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, but uh, for now, until next time, goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.